Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey friends, welcome to the Tennis and Bagels podcast. I am your host, Andre. And I felt like I spoke a little bit like when Bunch does his intros this time. I don't know why, but maybe we're just spending way, way too much time together. <laughs> um, speaking of which, how are you guys doing? Uh, good, Andre. Happy to spend time with you always, and uh, excited about the red clay. You know, this is a, this is a good part of the season, and uh, you know, excited to talk about it and see see what unfolds the next couple of months. Yeah, uh, great to be here again. Always fun doing these podcasts, and I'm also excited for the clay. Uh, Monte Carlo is just starting, so we didn't have that last year, and I'm really excited for this tournament. Just hope the rain cooperates. Yeah, exactly. Like most likely the most beautiful tournament uh in the whole calendar um and i think clay is like my favorite surface i'm not sure if i'm biased because i'm from south america originally so i grew up playing on those courts but uh yeah i think clay is definitely gets me most excited about like until grass comes on at least what do you guys think yeah um clay court tennis is uh, it's quite fun to watch the players just uh, construct the points, I think. And you see a lot of different kind of shot making and variety. And really, it becomes about shot tolerance and consistency from the baseline, but also some really nice uh, variety and uh, good. And you really have to be physically strong and mentally tough, I think, to play well on clay, to be able to um, sustain a high higher level and just uh, because the court is slow um, you don't get the payoff necessarily from the ground strokes um, and some players you know especially a lot of players uh, majority of the players uh, live in Europe and they train in places like Monte Carlo in France and they're they're adept at uh, 
you know, sliding and moving on the clay. And so that contrast becomes really fun to watch uh, in these in these matchups, obviously. And then you have the king of clay, Rafael Nadal, who's always, um, you know, making history on the surface and um, has won, you know, around 92% of his matches uh, in a 20-year career, which is just astounding. And so, um, you know, this part of the season is is always, I think, uh, memorable. Yeah, I think you're you're saying earlier, right? So like one of the myths of uh, clay court is that like, well, you're saying that it's a myth that like uh, clay court has like the, the longest rallies per match. I would say yeah, is it... um, the average ra- rally length uh, on of uh, clay court tennis versus grass and hard court tennis is is actually not that different. Um, so I think it speaks to more about the point construction that's required and the extra work that you need to generate pace on clay which is just tougher because you don't um the ball just slows down and you have to you know play with more margin and top spin but you also have to um you know move and get and get yourself in the right position and so that extra bit of time i think uh, helps a lot of players um and you can really wear your opponent down and but that's going to be through um really good point construction and uh you know that's why you see so many players who prefer the red clay and do very well in the South American hard court swing, but also places like Monte Carlo and Barcelona and this time of the year. And um, yeah, so it really really rewards. I think uh, a lot of players on the tour. Yeah, I, I think it has a I think it has a big impact on movement as well because clay is um so if we're comparing it to grass, even with the higher quality grass of recent times, bad bounces are way less frequent on clay. So it really promotes hanging back at the baseline, coming to net less often, more as a tactic of surprise than anything. And, uh, and yeah, the ball sits up, so you can hang way behind the baseline, hit with heavy topspin, and the ball will fly really high up, as Nadal has demonstrated throughout his career. So I think also when surfaces change, it's important to look at how movement and positioning becomes optimal on different surfaces and not just speed or length of rallies. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I guess speaking from uh, the perspective of somebody who's learned how to play on clay, like the the first thing that they teach you is to be consistent from the back of the court, and it's like you 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 always do drills like that. You have to do like whatever you need to do ten shots before your point before the point starts. So it's like yeah, it's pretty brutal. Um, and I think movement. I in particular, I love sliding. And I think not being able to slide on hard courts is extremely uh, detrimental to my game. Like when I'm playing, like, and I can only imagine this being like an extremely um, um, important factor for like players like who are who are great on clay. They move well on clay. It's like it's it's not as transferable as like hitting forehands, I guess. Like you can you can change some some of the techniques, but sometimes like moving, it's not as it's not as like an, an it's like it's not as obvious a thing that you would that you would change um, on your game. Like you'd have to actually get to play matches and learn how to move on the surface. I feel like this is something that's important. And honestly, like in terms of a viewership, I just really love seeing the clay like on on TV. Even if it was the the blue clay, it was confusing because I thought it was a hardcore when I when I glanced at it at first. But then uh, we had the the red clay is my favorite one of my favorite surfaces to look at. Um, 
Um, I'm still undecided to this day whether I prefer um, grass court or clay court. Maybe I just like the transition from one to the other, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned something that was interesting there, which is the, um, uh, you mentioned, uh, like, a willingness to dig in. And uh, something that reminded me of is, like, a lot of players say, like, you have to learn to suffer and mm. dig in. And I think that really applies on clay. I remember um, watching this week a little bit of highlights uh, of, uh, you know, there was a tournament in Marbella going on in ATP 250 this week, which had four four of the semifinalists were all Spaniards. And um, Karina Busta just won the title and he beat Jaume Munar in the final. Uh, but in his semifinal win over Ramos Vinolas, his countryman, he had uh, he, he said in his interview afterwards, he said that I um, I just love to suffer. I learned, I've learned how to suffer, and I, I think that's just um, a testament that the amount of pain tolerance and the amount of, um, you know, consistency and the the way you kind of have to pace yourself on clay, I think, is just, you know, if you're not a great mover on it, it becomes so much tougher. And so, yeah, I think um, that's why you see a lot of um, Spanish players especially doing well on the surface. Yeah, and willingness to suffer is huge anywhere in tennis, but especially on clay. I think we talked about how the difference between clay and grass might not be as big as some people think, but on clay, the short points are not necessarily going to come in clumps. There will be lots of them, but you can't like serve your way through a set on clay. Mm. And your opponent can make it much more difficult for you to win points by hanging way back behind the baseline, hitting neutralize, neutralizing high balls. And so you really have to be prepared to hit 10 15 20 shots if you want to win a point sometimes so it's it's really impressive and i think scary for probably other players on the tour to hear Karina to say that he loves to suffer yeah yeah especially like when you when you think about um players who love to to attack and um some players have like some sort of like difficulty like understanding like where where are they at in the rally so like is 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 this is this a neutral point in the rally is this a point where i can agree be aggressive so a lot of them just tend to rush the net and yeah. going to the net on clay, I, I think is probably of all the surfaces without a good opportunity on clay is probably the worst time like that you can have. Yeah. You, you can probably get past. Like you mentioned yeah. like Karina Busta and, and Hame Munar. I was saying like before the call that I was watching up some of the highlights and uh, the match and Munar was hanging like some like three, four meters behind the baseline. And... He was passing Karina Busta. It, 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 it's insane like to think to think that like you have the time and the space to do that on, on clay. Like that wouldn't necessarily exist very well on uh, other surfaces, either because the ball bounces a little um, lower, as would be the case in grass, or just because a little faster in general on, on other surfaces. Even though nowadays the surfaces speeds are very, very similar in in a lot of ways like it's not exactly as it used to be um some like 30 years ago but like regardless i feel like yeah. clay still punishes you if you if you just think you can just go to the net like and win the point without without anything to back you up so yeah the finishing point yeah, the finishing point becomes so much tougher doesn't it like too- exactly mm-hmm yeah, I think one of the worst things you can do on clay is come to net behind a bad approach. I think on clay more than any other surface, you can have rallies in which like it's not entirely clear which player is ahead in the rally. And so I think sometimes players can get frustrated with that, lose their patience and come to net. And the 
both tours as a whole are great at passing shots, in part due to racket technology, so they can find all the angles, and Clay gives them time, even if they're way behind the baseline like Munar was in that final. So it's really important on Clay, if you're going to come to net, do it in a surprising way or do it off a great approach, mm-hmm. because you will get passed if neither of those things happened. Yeah. happen. Yeah, absolutely. So um, now that we have underway, because last week we had a couple of smaller tournaments. We had Charleston, essentially, which essentially just broke down in terms of draw. Um, Barty um, and Mugurusa, who have been doing incredibly well during this throughout the season, um, lost early. Oh, I mean, Barty lost early-ish, and Mugurusa had to retire, and a lot of other players um, just also lost early. And we had a somewhat unexpected final, but. I feel like this week we have at least two, um, at least two important events. Like I mean, the, the women's events, like mostly important right now, would be the now called Billie Jean King Cup, which is still something that a lot of tennis fans need to like um, hammer in their heads a little bit because the change is not necessarily quick to adapt. So even I myself, I have to kind of remember myself all the time that it's not called the Fed Cup anymore, but the Billie Jean King Cup. And we have the first Masters 1000 on clay of the year in an event that did not happen last year in Monte Carlo. And Novak Djokovic and Rafa Nadal are in it. And they're in opposite halves of the draw. They're not number one. Mm-hmm. They're one, numbers one and three seed, right? Yes. yes. I, I was about to uh, ask you. You forgot to mention the number two seed, clay court artist, oh, Daniel yeah. Medvedev. I can't believe you didn't <laughs> mention that right off the bat. Yeah. How could I How could I forget? He's one of the biggest threats, no doubt, on clay, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I, favorite for the French Open, I would say. Yep. Nobody can, can handle like those uh, those low balls, generate pace from the baseline. The, the, those, yeah. those high margin, flat ground strokes. Yeah. yeah. It would be the most Medvedev thing to just go and go from like 0-5 at the French Open and then just win the whole yeah. thing. Like, lose first round in all the lead-ups and then win the French Open. You would. Yeah. Can you imagine if he does that and, like, he does the shrug again at the at the final of the or, French Open? Or the Open? octopus, yeah. <laughs> Holy crap, that would be... Yeah, that would be something whatever. else. Th- then, then that would be the moment I would look at him and be like, okay, now we got something special happening here. This isn't... Yeah. This is, this is not normal. <laughs> the next gen has finally arrived. Yeah. It's funny. Like, we, we, we always joked at the uh, clay court artist... A comment by Cliff Drysdale from ESPN when he was making the predictions. Sorry, Cliffy. Um, at the French Open last year, like before the draw, and but it's kind of funny. Like his clay court results. Like if you take out the French Open, right? I mean, and you take out Madrid and Rome, his two best results on clay were <laughs> 2019 and Monte Carlo, where he beat Stefano Tsitsipas and then Novak Djokovic. Djokovic didn't play a great match, but still. Uh, got to the, yeah. got to the semifinals, and then he's five one up against Lajovic, and then loses that, and we have a Lajovic Fanini final, and then he goes to Barcelona the very next week, and then beats uh, Kane Nishikori in actually a really great three set match, and then loses out, and then after that doesn't win a match the rest of the season, and then doesn't win a match last yeah. year. So I, like... I think he got to a Barcelona final against Team as well, and he was up three right, zero, yeah. and then he yeah. kind of got rolled after that. Yeah, that, yeah that's sorry, a, that's I was just laughing at that. Uh... I was, um, Mentioning where he beat yeah. Nishikori, right? And then he lost to team in the final. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I was laughing at a takeout Roland Garros in Madrid and Rome because those are like three of the biggest tournaments. Yeah, but I mean... but you are right. He, he he does have some good wins to his name on clay. Okay. I So, so I, I'm probably a little bit too harsh on him, but it's it's not his best surface yeah, to I say the least. I, I still don't understand. Maybe he, maybe he just kind of had a, had a bad season on clay and just couldn't win mm-hmm. much. Even though he has never won a match Roland Garros, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I, so I guess right? last 
I mean, I guess last season must have been tougher because the turnaround was so quick and he went deep at the US Open and then he yeah. pretty much played mm-hmm. like the next yeah. week. So I think I think that and then also his draw didn't help. He got Fuksovic in the first round, which is a, a brutal draw right. for him. So I do think like he could... Except for Rublev. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. I hope we never play again, it, is what Fuksovic said. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Medvedev would probably rather play Rublev than Fuksovic on any throw. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he did mention today that he hopes that the extra week um, after Rome and the French would give him some extra time to prepare. Because um, another mm. interesting turn of events is that the French Open has actually um, moved its a date by a by a, by a yeah. week, and their explanation for that was that we're you know the vaccine rollout is a little bit slower here in France, and we want to be make sure that we're we have we're ready and fully prepared and equipped to have fans back in the stadium. And it was kind of strange at first because I was like, okay, you're going to move it one week, but how does that really help the COVID situation? But then I guess they just want to have a, you know a close to a full capacity stadium, and they. But what it does do, and mm. I think. Um, at least last year, at least it wasn't like last year where they just took the decision unilaterally and didn't um, inform like the other majors and stuff. But this year, at least um, the other other majors definitely knew about it, like yeah. the Wimbledon and US Open and the all release statements. So that was good that, you know, at least there was some unity in that sense. But then what it does do is that it affects the ATP and WTA tours because the second week of the French Open is now probably going to be the first week of the grass court beat up events and normally mm-hmm. there's a three week right. gap since 2015 between the french open and wimbledon instead this year it's two weeks so now tournaments like stuttgart and um another 250 and some other wta events are going to be um, hampered by this and you know honestly they may not be able to have a turnout at all and probably would lose a lot of revenue and so it'll just be interesting to see like whether what players decide and you know especially somebody yeah. like somebody like roger federer you know will he actually now reconsider playing the French Open because he's already not playing in Rome. Um, As the entry Mm. list for that came out today, that he's not going to be playing in Rome, but then he's going to be playing in Madrid and most likely the French Open, but still not sure whether he'll actually do that or not. If he goes second week, because then he's going to have to potentially play Halle the next week. And Halle is like kind of his place where he gets those matches in before Wimbledon. So yeah. And and I think if the grass court season is going to get decimated, skipping Roland Garros could kind of give him a leg up on a lot of his competitors, yeah. who a yeah. lot of him aren't great on grass, and if they're not going to be able to play lead-ups, then him skipping Roland Garros and just playing one or even getting extra training time on the grass could be a huge advantage. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah, because he would definitely... Yeah, and... No, go ahead. Uh, sorry, I was going to say, I don't want to get too dramatic, but I think... If things continue like this for the grass court season, it's just a bit of a shame because with the ATP, we can already see this huge divide with the next gen who are not developing into good grass court players. And I feel like if it continues to occupy this small of a part of a year, uh, things just don't look great for its future. But sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say it's for about Roger Federer. It's not like he's going to lack yeah. match practice either because he's most likely going to play Halle as well. So unless he actually retires for whatever reason, he's he's gonna have enough, um, and he's he's more than used to to play on grass. And let's be honest, he's won like some mm-hmm. like seven or eight Halle titles, and also ten. eight Wimbledon's <laughs> nine. Oh wow, ten! Yeah, ten, ten Halle titles, ten? Oh, of and eight Wimbledon's. Yeah. So so yeah, like it, he would probably wanting would be wanting to go for La Undecima as well, if you want to call it that, like <laughs> like Nadal did it, and uh, yeah. at a uh, Halle and. The the tricky part yeah. about the Halle is that it's the week right after the French Open. So if you were to get to like a fourth round, a quarters or something like that, yeah. that surface changes 
going to be tough if he actually decides to, if he commits to the clay that's why i'm isn't it two weeks though know? like uh I mean, oh yeah that's true Halle got moved up a week because of the three week thing mm. yeah but yeah yeah i mean normally because you have three weeks right normally it's like stuttgart and another tournament like Hershenbosch or something mm-hmm. and then after that you have Halle and queens the second week and then usually there's like turkey or another event and then yeah. wimbledon i wonder if they're just gonna yeah, move so. like some of those tournaments down which is not gonna be great for like preparation for wimbledon but then you can still have the tournament and at this yeah, part of the season, honestly, I'm going to tell you like this, not at this part of the season, but at this year in particular with or COVID is like just making everybody struggle. It's incredibly important right. that tournaments hold their tournaments, you know, because yeah. for yeah. a lot of the federations and things like that is is um, their main, main source of revenue. And if they can have a tournament, they can just survive, especially if they already didn't have a tournament last year. Like going two years exactly. without one is going to be extremely brutal. So, yeah, and I think Wimbledon was maybe the only one that had pandemic insurance. So for for a lot of these yeah. tournaments, not happening a year could be crippling, like you said. Exactly. Yeah, those smaller tournaments you really worry about, like the two fifties. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Because they can't go two years in a row, uh, you know, getting canceled. Yes. Yeah. The pandemic has really made me appreciate how sort of unfailing the tour is and like everything happening every year, because if it doesn't happen one year, like it can really throw a wrench in everything. So I, I kind of failed to realize before how tenuous everything was because it seems to happen with such consistency. 